Now, if you will, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and then once you've found it, you can stand with me. I want to read beginning at verse 12, and I'll read through verse 15. Colossians 3, 12 to 15. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for another opportunity to hear Your Word to receive its encouragement, to receive its rebukes and reproofs and convictions. Lord, we're reminded again of how merciful you are that you've not remained silent to surprise us at the judgment of where we've fallen short and how great is the expanse between us. But Lord, you've given us your word so that we might know and prepare ourselves for that day. And I pray that this hour would be one such time where we simply look at your word, we look at our hearts, and we ask, where is it that I've fallen short? And then we would come to you for the grace to be made more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that the Lord Jesus would be honored by our listening, by the attention that we give to your word, and by the honest evaluation we make of our own hearts in light of the calling to which we've been called. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In a desire to seal up all of our hearts with regard to the conviction of the concept of corporate repentance. Remember, that's where we're our starting point, Revelation 2 and 3. We've embarked on a, a study of the reality of corporate solidarity or corporate unity, a concept, remember, that is completely foreign to our society and really very contrary to what most evangelicals believe ought to be happening in the hearts and the minds and in the gathering of the people of God. So after setting forth the reality of corporate repentance, 
and, and in, actually in preparation for that one message, and that's really all I had planned on preaching, but in studying for it, I, I was personally convinced of the prevalence of this theme throughout the New Testament, and so I have tried to bring that theme to bear so that you could see what I could see, again, so that we would all be convinced of this. Remember that every New Testament audience receives some sort of admonition, some sort of warning or encouragement, some exhortation with regard to unity, and you can find references to this concept in almost, if not every, New Testament book. It's, it's a major theme. So what I've done is compiled a list of, of many of those texts, not even all of them. I, I've, I've, until today, have stayed away from the Gospels. We'll look at some of the Gospels today. But I compiled a list of those texts, and I've tried to put them into categories so that when I bring you a, a topical expository sermon, every sermon will kind of have the same point um, moving forward. So we've looked at that reality of corporate solidarity. We looked at the Pauline emphasis on corporate solidarity. Last week we looked at the redemptive pattern of corporate solidarity. The idea that we can, this is such an important theme that the, the scriptures trace it from the state of the lost all the way through to glory. And, it, and we can use it as sort of a, a marker to gauge our own spiritual growth. Well now we can start making some application. We've been making application all along, but the goal starting today and Lord willing next week and then the week after that is going to be almost exclusively applying this. What does it actually look like to put these things into practice? So today we're going to open up what I've entitled the commands given to cultivate this unity. Next Lord's Day we'll look at prohibitions given to prevent disunity, and then we'll seal it all up, Lord willing, in two weeks from today, the goal of this unity and our need for God's help in cultivating it. And if you're paying attention, hopefully you'll notice that I'm not recycling texts except to maybe bring something we've seen in as a cross-reference or to support a point. Overall, when we're finished, we will have looked at nearly 40 passages in the New Testament, all of them hinting at, alluding to, or expressly stating that a, a local congregation ought to be united and stand in unity with one another. So the first heading that I want us to consider today is the fundamental grace necessary for corporate unity. As I begin to study, and really my goal was just, let's just walk through the commands. What does it say? But then as I began to break up those commands, I realized that there was sort of a major emphasis, uh, a fundamental thing that uh, without this, all of the commands are practically useless. The fundamental grace necessary for corporate unity. If I asked you, what is the fundamental, essential work of grace in the heart produced by the Spirit of God that is absolutely requisite to church unity, what would you say? What, what would the, be the first thing that comes to your mind? Where you would say, without this, it won't work. Nothing else matters apart from this. As a matter of fact, apart from this, everything else we might pursue is useless. The answer, hopefully, that comes to your mind is love. There must be love. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
1 Corinthians 13. I want to read the first three verses. <clears throat> Considering the fundamental grace necessary for corporate unity, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if I have the eloquence that obviously the Corinthians and their culture would have known, they would have understood what it meant to exalt a man because of the eloquence of his rhetoric. He says, if I speak that way or even if I could speak in some heavenly language with a heavenly eloquence, but I don't love... I might as well come up to your ear and just start banging a cymbal in your ear. It's, it's going to be nothing but an aggravation, an annoyance to the people of God. He goes on to say, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I have all of the gifts, all of the powers, all of the insight, I know all the answers to all the scriptures. I've got to memorize. You ask me a question, go to the hard text. Pick out the hardest one. I can explain it. I understand every bit of it. He says, if I could do all of that, but I didn't have love, I am no thing. I'm nothing. He says, if I give away all I have... And if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. If I go to the utmost extreme of self-sacrifice, we read the biographies of men and women in the past, missionaries, we say, oh, look at that life. They gave it all up. I want to give it all up. I want that life. I want people to remember me as one who sacrificed everything. He says, if I, if I did that, went to the martyr's stake and bur was burned alive for the faith, but I did not have love, it was all useless. This is the fundamental grace needed for corporate unity or necessary for corporate unity. Now, I want to break th that heading down. Consider the function of love. We saw this in the passage we read in Colossians. Above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, the, the phrase above all these is not a statement of, of uh, primacy. It's the language of putting on a robe, putting on a, a pair of coveralls over everything that you're wearing to keep you warm in the wintertime. Over everything else that he had just named, drape love which binds everything together. That, that language is like that of a, a belt, or like we saw in Revelation chapter 1, a sash that holds the clothing together in perfect harmony, full, completed unity. Now, as we read, Paul had just referenced compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And then he says, do all of that, but over top of that, draping over all of that and holding it all together in a completed unit of manifold godliness, put on love. Love is the thing that's going to ensure that none of those are lacking. Love will ensure that... All of these are carried out in sincerity. 
Love is going to spark the flame of each of those other graces and then fan that into flame into a blaze in the congregation. There has to be love. It must be covering all of these other things and holding them together. But when we start talking about love in our society, we know there are a lot of different things that people call love that are not love. A lot of people would look at physical lust. When I look at someone's body, my eyes tell my biological nerve endings to start tingling, and that must be love. I'm feeling something. Or it might be selfish pleasure. Because I can use that person to satisfy something in me, and I feel good about it when I'm around them, that must be love. Or a lot of people in our society would, would say that love is caring so much about a person that it doesn't matter if they're involved in destructive sins that are eating them alive. I overlook all of that. I, I, over, I, I just turn a blind eye to that because I don't want to turn them away. Again, I, I feel like I need them near me and so that must be love. And these things kind of come into many visible churches. But consider a twofold love that the Scriptures actually command the believers to have. 1 John 13, 35, a text we read before, Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the word there is the word agape. We, we talk about these various words for love often. If you have agape for one another. The same word that John used in 1 John 4, 8 when he said God is love. God is agape. Now that's a love... Because it is an attribute of God, it is a love that is perfectly consistent with all of the other attributes of God. It, it never comes in contrast with or competes with His righteousness, His perfect righteousness, or His justice. It's perfectly consistent with His holiness. That love is perfectly consistent with the reality that God says, I cannot look upon evil. That's that kind of love. And as Christians, we are able, actually able to display the God kind of love because He's given us His Spirit who works this love in us. One theological dictionary gives this definition of agape, a strong non-sexual affection or regard for a person or being willing to forfeit your rights and privileges on their behalf. Now, a lot of times we, we tie to this love the word unconditional. And when we begin, we begin to look at people and how people love one another, and we, we attach or try to think of people having unconditional love for one another, and maybe you've had this experience where you've, you've saw a, a deadbeat parent, a deadbeat dad, a deadbeat mom. The government comes, social services come, and take their kids away from them. And then all of a sudden, I will do anything to get my babies back. Anything. I would do anything for my children. I would do anything for my daughter except that which accords with righteousness, justice, and holiness. In other words, this kind of love is, is so unconditional that it doesn't even show up until it's pressed into a pinch. And, and this type of love has to be you know, you know, almost sucked out of a person. Love, we, we very often say love is something you do, but again... Falsely, but it is a reality. A lot of people take that idea so far to say that it's only an action with no affection. 
And so we begin to think of God as this cold and distant Father who just sits in the heaven, who has some love, but He, he doesn't manifest it until we're, we're really in a pinch and then His love will come through. But apart from that, He's just sort of there and everybody gets the same thing. And again, those are false distortions. But when we hear that concept of agape... Our mind can, can drift into some kind of a coldness. And so when it comes to the relationship between believers, we have to lay, us, lay bes, beside that love another command of the New Testament. Hebrews 13.1 says, Let brotherly love continue. That's a different word. 1 Peter 3.8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. The same dictionary defines this love, again, a non-sexual affection between siblings. So we can think of brotherly love or sibling love as a sort of a tender devotion that begins and develops and deepens over the years as two siblings have shared experiences. Because there are mutual relationships between them, they have the same mother, they have the same father, they have the same teaching from father and mother, they live in the same household, they were probably raised with the same worldview. They've dealt with these things together over the years and they develop this bond of sibling love or brotherly love. The scriptures command this also for believers. Not just agape, this, this almost indescribable God kind of love, which we, can, we see and we'll talk about it, but a brotherly love that really people who are not even converted can understand brotherly love. We can't get away with a cold distant love that basically boils down to if anything bad happens... At that point, I'll begin to act on my love. But until then, I'm just going to do my own thing. We add to that brotherly love, and we get this strong and selfless devotion that is willing to suffer for the sake of another person. But it comes out of or flows out of an actual, warm, tender affection for that person. Something in them stirs something in you and draws your heart out to them. And so extreme circumstances are not required. It's not brotherly love to say, well, if you need me, let me know. And just sit back and wait and hope nothing comes up. When it's this kind of love, you can't help but show it. Because it, it's drawn out of you. This is a love, again, that only God can give. But for the people in the church, it's, created, it's a love created by a relationship that only God can create. A spiritual, brotherly bond. Now, this is not anything new. John says in 2 John 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. He says, this, there's nothing new. Keep doing what you've been doing from the very beginning. Love one another. And he got this from Christ who said, in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And that commandment is new there because of or in light of the new display. The disciples are now able to see and are, are going to go on to see an example of self-sacrificing, dying love. And Jesus says, love one another this way. 
And John came after him and wrote, Just keep doing what Jesus said to do from the beginning. Christ commanded it. John continues to teach it. And the pulpit commentary, I thought this is interesting. The pulpit commentary says, All commentators refer to the well-known saying of St. John at Ephesus as recorded by Jerome. So Jerome records something that John said while he was a pastor at the church in Ephesus to this effect, quote, This is the Lord's commandment. If ye love one another, it is enough. Because John understood if you could just love each other, these other things are going to sort themselves out. And that commentary goes on to quote two other men who I don't believe are Christians as they spoke of Christians in their society. One of them said, they love before they know each other. And another one said, their master makes them believe they are brothers. This is how they were known. It's not anything new. Even people outside the church, just like the Lord had said, they knew... They, they might say, I don't understand all of their doctrine. I don't believe all of their doctrine, but they act like they're siblings. Now, where could we go and say, that's what it looks like right there. If we're, we're seeing, we want to see this modeled. It's, it's agape, it's a God kind of love, but it's, it's also coupled with a brotherly love shared between siblings. We saw it displayed and we could say, that right there, that's it. That's what we're aiming for, just if we could do that. Of course, the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in, or John writes in 1 John 3, 16, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He's saying in, in this act of our Lord, in His death, that act, we have come to see and experience and understand what the love of God looks like when it is put inside of a man loving other men, the God-man, as he loves his brothers. Here's, here's how we see it. He deliberately, intentionally, willfully offered up the most precious thing he had, his life, for our sake, for us. Now, we know that ultimately the death of Christ was to make atonement for sins, to satisfy the justice of God, to reconcile us to God. All of these things we cannot do for one another. I can't make atonement for your sins. But what we see in that is that the Lord Jesus was after our greatest good by meeting our greatest need. Our greatest need was not that we were hungry or thirsty or naked. Our greatest need was that I was alienated from God. And Christ comes to bring me back into real, intimate, close, desirous fellowship with God where we both come together, God to the believer and the believer to God with open arms embracing one another. Christ did that in His death. For our greatest good, meeting our greatest need. And then John says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Again, we can't atone for the sins of each other. But we can have the same kind of self-sacrificing love where we are after the greatest good of our brethren. Intentionally, deliberately, Willfully, nobody has to suck it out of me. Nobody has to prod me along. I actually love and therefore I act. I can't help it. As our Lord said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This is how we ought to love. No one begs me to love the brethren. I just love them. 
of my own accord. So if we wanted to define this Christian love, we could say it's an active pursuit of the well-being of our brothers and sisters or someone else, regardless of what it costs us and in spite of any personal offense. As a matter of fact, personal offense between us is all but disregarded. It's set aside for the good of others. Others are considered more highly. It's actually of the essence of this kind of love that I expect and look for ways to be poured out for the sake of others. This is the fundamental grace necessary for corporate unity. Apart from this, we, we, can, we can get together, we can have potlucks, we can have bonfires, we can, whatever you name it, we can all get together and do it. Especially when we begin to name those types of things that really we kind of like when we're not together. So it, it's not really hard for us to just get together and do it. We can have all of that stuff. But apart from this type of love between us, we're just wasting our time. Then... The second point, the second thing that I want us to consider is the general character of Christian love. The general character of Christian love. If this love is the fundamental grace necessary to cultivate corporate unity, where could I go in Scripture to find a fairly comprehensive and yet brief overview of what Christian love looks like in the context of the church. Not just a, a vague concept of the demeanor of love. Not the love that a man has for his wife or a wife for her husband. Not the love of a marriage. Not the love between parents and children specifically. But Christian love displayed in the local church. Most of you are already there. Contrary to how it's popularly used, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is not about people getting married. It's about the love that we're talking about, the love in a local church. So, let's look at that again. Hopefully you've still got it open there. Just to prove the point, look back up at chapter 12, verse 27. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then he goes through this list of negative rhetorical questions, assuming a negative response. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Etc., etc., Verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Paul, what, could, what on earth could be more excellent than to have gifts of healing and helping and tongues and apostles and, and all of these things? What's more excellent than that? Well, we read it already. Verses 1 through 3 says you can have all of that stuff. If you don't love each other, it's all useless. Love is foundational. And then in verse 4, he describes this love. This is what we often hear read in a wedding. What I want to do is walk through these traits of Christian love, and hopefully you'll just begin to get a, a general idea of what it looks like to love in this way. First, he says love is patient. So this Christian love that is sort of twofold, agape love, 
put in the heart by the Spirit of God, and also a, a brotherly love based on a relationship created by God, that type of love will manifest itself in patience. What's the context? The local church. Patience with one another in the church. Now patience is, could be defined as being even-tempered while you're enduring a trying circumstance. Children can endure a trip, a long trip, without being patient because they complain and whine and ask constantly, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can I have this? Can I have that? When are we going to be there? That's not patience, but they're enduring. They have to. They don't have a choice. Adults are the same way. We can endure uh, an overly long wait in the doctor's office and in our minds murmur and complain and, well, why on earth did he schedule me for 9.15 if he's not going to come out here until 9.30? We have to endure. We don't have an option, but we're not being patient. To be patient is, first and foremost, an attitude of the mind as you deal with or endure these circumstances. And again, this is patience in the church. The attitude of the mind and the heart as you endure other people and the circumstances that arise in the church. I wonder how many of us would be in a church this morning all by ourselves, sitting in a pew all by ourselves, if we had been abandoned in our growth at the same place in which we are so often tempted to abandon others because well, they're not where we are. And so we want to just cast it off and say, I'm, I'm tired of waiting. I, I'm, I just I can't put up with it anymore. If we stop and we think, praise God, that I was not abandoned, that someone was patient with me. How many churches would there be if every believer left three days after coming to a new understanding of something because, well, everybody else in the church is still where I was three days ago. How, how do they not see it? How do they not see what I'm seeing? Well, three days ago you hadn't seen it. And we're so quickly to abandon brothers and sisters rather than being patient. True love produces patience. You're not being patient if you're not even-tempered. Huffing and puffing and complaining, that's not patience. True love is patient. Christian love is patient. Why? Because it wants the good of those around it. It is hopeful of a fruitful outcome if they're truly converted. Secondly, love is kind. Synonyms for kind would be warm-hearted or considerate. So this type of love will manifest itself in someone who is, or, or in, in displaying a warm-heartedness. You're welcoming to others, affectionate toward others. There's a, to, to paint the picture of being warm-hearted, there's a comfortable place in your heart for them. They can, they can be in there and it's, it's not grating against you or them that you have a relationship. You're warm-hearted. Now to be considerate deals with your thoughts. In your thoughts, if you're kind, warm-hearted, and considerate. Now get this. Some of you might have to write this down. We should make a bumper sticker. You think in your mind about other people. You think about the feelings of other people. You stop and think about the way somebody might receive a comment. 
or how an action might be received or perceived by other people. How might it affect that person? I'm, what I'm doing is trying to get into their mind and think, if I'm them, they're not me, they don't think like me, maybe I should not say this the way I would want it said to me. Maybe I should think about how they would receive it. Why? Because I'm, I'm considering them. I'm not just thinking of myself. A person who's considerate has other people in the church on their minds. There's not a problem to solve. There's not an issue to work around. You're just thinking about other people in, in normal, everyday life. Love, again, produces this because love is seeking the good of others. It's thinking about others and their growth, not just your own. Thirdly, love does not envy. That is, it does not desire the advantages of others. So if you love somebody... You don't secretly suspect that they've done something immoral because they have got advantages you don't have. Well, I, I know that I'm, I'm in this state in life because, well, I've been obeying God and they have advanced higher than me. They must have done something wrong. They must have lied. That there has to be some sin in their life that has given them that advantage. To envy means that you will oftentimes have contempt for your own lot in life because you're constantly comparing it to the lot of others. Now think about, imagine what that could do in a church if you're constantly evaluating your lot in life compared to everybody else's lot in life and who's where and who's getting this and who's moving up and who's moving down. Think about what that could do in a church. This is where we very often can inadvertently begin to subscribe to intersectionality. You know, this, this new thing, it's not new at all, but all of a sudden it's new because somebody has a title for it. But it, th this is what it is. They don't know what life is like for me because they're not where I am. That's intersectionality. Everybody's fighting about the social justice, social gospel. That's it. They haven't been where I've been. They don't struggle like I struggle. Therefore, they cannot address my situation. Or they're not in my shoes. And so they, they don't really know how I ought to act in my situation. In other words, their road doesn't intersect where my road intersects. And therefore, they can't speak over into my intersection. It's the same thing. Their gifts are useless to me. Why? Well, because they've got more money than I've got. They, they can't speak to me about stewardship. I mean, they clearly don't have the same struggles that I have. If they had what I had, well, they'd be singing a different tune. I'm ultimately a victim of my circumstances, and they can't help me here. Christian love doesn't think that way. Christian love doesn't envy by constantly evaluating these things. Christian love desires the good of others. A Christian is thrilled when another believer is blessed with something they don't have. Why? Because they got it. A member of my body got something that is great, and I'm glad for them. I don't want what you have. I'm glad you got it. You try to give it to me, I'm going to say, no, you keep it. I want you to have it. That's Christian love. It doesn't envy because it's thinking, considering others. Fourthly, love does not boast. That is, boast, brag, exhibit or display self-importance. Love does not cause a person to constantly speak of themselves, what they have, what they do, their skills, their abilities, for the purpose of lifting themselves up in the esteem of others. Now, there's nothing wrong with stating a simple fact. But when you begin to speak of things that 
in your mind, your motivation is, I need to get myself up a notch in their esteem. That's boasting. Again, love doesn't do that. Why? Because I already think of them as higher than me. I don't want to be higher than them. I want to lift them up in my esteem, not myself and theirs. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogance. Arrogance is the thought process that leads to boasting. It's thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think and then assuming that I need to be thought of as highly in their mind as I think of myself in my mind. I feel like they're not thinking about me as quite as highly as I'm thinking of myself. Because you misunderstand the truth about yourself, the truth about your sin, the truth about your God. And so you begin to think I'm better than I am. And then you begin to think I'm probably better than others too. That's arrogance. Love doesn't do that because love esteems others more highly than yourself. Love is not rude. To be rude means to act in a way that is not in keeping with normal societal standards of right and wrong. Decorum is the word people use. To act rudely is to act as though societal standards don't apply to you. This is just in, in general day-to-day -day life in our culture, and different cultures have different ways of, of, of or different decorum, but in our culture, pretty much everybody believes and assumes this is about the right way to do things. Well, when you're rude, you're acting as though that don't apply to me. I'm in my own class. They just need to get over themselves. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Everybody else is really just confused about what's right and wrong to you. You think of your children. The example I used last night was being loud at the dinner table in a restaurant. Everybody pretty much assumes that if I'm at a table with my family, most of my conversations are going to be right there at that table. If I just show up and start yelling across the restaurant at somebody else at another table and we carry on a conversation, somebody is going to get uncomfortable and say, how rude. That's just how it is in our culture. Again, now we have to bring this into the context of the church. We're not assuming that everything our culture says is moral, is actually moral. But within the church, there is a general understanding of what is normal and a general understanding of the standards of decorum. To be rude is to go against that. But Christian love does not produce that. Because if I'm a Christian and I love my brethren, I want you to be at peace. I don't want to do things that put people on edge. I don't want to unnecessarily cast off what is decent because, again, I'm thinking of you. I don't want you to be offended by me. These things have a tendency to offend people, to push people away, to make people uneasy. And I don't want people to be uneasy around me for, for things that ought not to matter. If I know something offends a brother or sister, I'm not going to do it. That's what Paul said. If, if eating meat offends my brother, then I'm done with it. I'm not going to touch it again. Love is not rude. Love, is, love does not insist in its own way. That language, I think, is actually too harsh. And it actually gives us, we would find a loophole in the phrase, does not insist in its own way. It literally reads, does not seek its own things. Does not pursue the advancement of oneself or one's opinions. 
Love does not demand that everybody conform to you and your views and your ways. And this will evidence itself anytime you're so absorbed in yourself that the needs of other people are ignored or the liberties of others go impinged upon because you are only thinking of yourself. Christian love says, I can set aside my way if it'll help somebody else grow. I can forget about what I was kind of hoping would happen if I can help somebody else. Love does not seek its own things. It does not insist on its own way. Number eight, love is not irritable. Easily provoked, easily stirred, easily incited. To use a crude example, if I say irritable, most of us are thinking of irritable bowel syndrome. Something inside of your gut. If you've ever experienced this or had it, it's like there's something in there saying, bring it on. I'm waiting for one milligram of some kind of unknown ingredient. And when I get that, everything is going to be destroyed in here. We're, we're turning things upside down. It's irritable, waiting to be pushed over the edge, waiting to be offended, looking for a reason to get hot. I knew it right there. Because you were already thinking in your mind, you're already about to be pushed over the edge. Christian love doesn't do that. Christian love is peaceable. Christian love is actually on the other end of the, the spectrum, on the other edge, waiting for a reason to rejoice in and with a brother or sister. Not irritable. Christian love is not resentful. It does not store up. This is what happens behind the concept of resentment. You store up the, the wrongdoings of others. As some say, keep a record of, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Or love thinketh no evil. You're, 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 you've got a catalog in your mind. You've got a document in your mind. And this is what tends toward irritability. You've got a document in your mind entitled, Things That Aggravate Me About So-and-So. And there's multiple documents. And you're just keeping a list. You're just keeping track of it. And then at some point, it all comes to a head. You're just waiting for that one final straw so that you can say, See, I knew it wasn't going to work out between us. I know we, we just can't get along. We're just too different. And, uh, well, how do you know that? Well, I can actually go back six years and start listing things that they did that kind of got under my skin. And I'm, I'm, I'm resenting that person. And then all of a sudden, you are provoked. It leads to irritability. Love doesn't do that. Love has a list called things I love about so-and-so. Places where I can see God Almighty working in grace in so-and-so. It keeps that list. Forgets misdeeds. Is not looking for a reason to avoid somebody. Looking for reasons to enjoy somebody. Good things about them. That's what love does. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Christian love, remember, is that God kind of love. That means it's perfectly consistent with the righteousness of God. And at the same time, it seeks the good of its object. And so it knows, Christian love knows that sin is detrimental to the soul and says, I can't rejoice in that sin. This is why a believer cannot attend a sodomite wedding. I can't rejoice in that. Well, we think you should just come and just celebrate with us. No, I can't. That would be like celebrating the fact that you're destroying your soul and running headlong into hell. There's nothing to celebrate there. There's no fun there. That's rejoicing in wrongdoing. 
This is very often how we know that parents, when, when their child goes into that lifestyle, all of a sudden their view on it changes. We can say, you don't love them, you hate them. Nothing but hatred would cause you to rejoice in the soul-destroying sins of your child. That's not love. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices to see truth advancing. Love rejoices when truth is believed. You've been patient with somebody, perhaps they didn't see it, and all of a sudden they see it, and the truth is believed, and that just thrills your soul. Rejoice, love rejoices that the truth is sanctifying believers. When you can watch people become holy, not just in outward moral conformity to some extra-biblical standard, but you can watch them, the way they think, the way they act, the way they carry themselves. This person is before my very eyes being transformed by the grace of God in truth, and that rejoices the soul. As John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth, according to the truth. Love bears all things. The picture there is that of a roof. Upholds and endures. Christian love says, I'm here. I'm going to stand through whatever it takes for the sake of my brethren. Love believes all things, namely those things that ought to be believed. This doesn't mean that love believes lies. Love believes against all... Um, rationality of what is actually happening, but things that ought to be believed with respect to other believers, Christian love says, believe that. Believe the best. Don't be quick to assume the worst. Love hopes all things, is confident, has a reasonable biblical expectation that good is going to come for that person in this situation or that situation. And love endures all things like a soldier is pushing through courageously, saying, I'm, I'm powering through this because I know that victory is on the other side, but we've got to endure. We've got to push through. Now, all of that is the general character of Christian love. That's the kind of love that has to season everything that we do as a church. It has to motivate it and precede it. It has to uphold it. Stand over it, overshadow it, fill it, motivate it. Everything that we're, that we're doing has to be filled with that kind of love. And if, it, if it's not, if that kind of love is not filling the things that you're doing in the congregation, everything that you're doing is vanity. It's just for yourself. It doesn't honor God. It doesn't help others. Because it's not done out of love. What it is very often is self-righteousness cloaked in duty to the church. You don't love. You're just doing it because you feel obligated to do it. So that's the general character of this love, which is the fundamental grace necessary to cultivate corporate unity. Now thirdly, then, we can look at Christian love applied in cultivating corporate unity. And here we're asking... What does this actually look like? Are there any concrete biblical examples, whether laid out in actual narrative or commanded through illustrative examples on how to live out this kind of love? The answer is yes. We're going to look at six different texts and several of them are in Matthew. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 7 and we'll start there. And this is not at all comprehensive. Matthew chapter 7. 
What does this look like when it's applied? Beginning at verse 3, our Lord says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now there are two steps laid out here that help us cultivate corporate unity by manifesting this Christian love. The first one is clean out the logs. Be regularly examining yourself. Take diligent care of your own spiritual condition. Honestly evaluate logs, glaring moral deficiencies, large things. Look for them. Now, that's where a lot of people stop. And that's their excuse. Well, I'm too busy dealing with my own problems. I, 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 shouldn't, be, I shouldn't worry about other people. That's, that's called a cop-out. That's called taking the name of the Lord in vain because you're using half of what Christ said to excuse you from the other half of what He said. It's having the, uh, the appearance of godliness, well, I'm just busy taking out the logs. But denying the power thereof, these logs just won't come out. There's, I, I'm, I can't get these logs out. Start with yourself. Love is kind and considerate, but love does not just look after its own interests. It also looks after the interests of others. And much of our self-work, as we're studying ourselves and dealing with ourselves, we ought to have in mind that the lessons that we are learning, we can use for the sake of others. The work of God in us, if we will pay attention to what God's doing in us, we will be able to use that and be greatly helpful to, in, in the lives of others. Because there's a step two. Christ expects that we're going to then help other people. So many come to this text and they say that they only want one side of it. But notice his second, the second half. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus never says ignore the specks. He never says, well, those specks are none of your business or you've got your own plate full of logs, don't worry about the specks, you just deal with you. He says, no, get the logs out so that you can see clearly to help them. Our Lord's addressing hypocrisy, not brotherly love. Log removers make great speck removers. Dealing with your own soul helps you more clearly address others. Very often, our view of others is blind because we have our own unaddressed sins. Very often, our own sinful worldview is what prevents us from seeing that what somebody else is doing is actually more godly than I am. But I can't see it. I didn't, I didn't even know it because I have my own logs. You see, a lot of people who, who live and think this way, they look at somebody and they say, well, that's just... I just can't go that far. That's just... Well, have you read this verse? Huh. Now what? I just got that log out for you. You're welcome. Clean out the logs, but then help with specs. Look at your personal growth as necessary. Nobody's saying ignore yourself. I'm saying 
work on yourself, the power of the Holy Spirit, but not just for yourself, for the sake of the body, just like parts of the body. I'm going to take care of my hands and my feet. Why? So that my brain can get to the next place I'm going. To deal with yourself, but so that you can help others. We're thinking of how the work of God overflows in our helping of others. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. Beginning at verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now the little ones there, remember, is pointing to the humble saints of God, fellow believers, Christians. We learn here in this parable that God cares deeply for each individual saint. Also remember that this is what we very often call the ecclesiastical discourse. Christ is dealing with interpersonal relationships in the congregation of the church. We see that later on when we get to church discipline. The humble saints of God then are our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. What do we learn? If I'm going to have the love of God for my brothers and sisters, and God considers the soul of one individual saint worthy of going and finding, then I ought to love them enough to go after them. I ought to be concerned for the spiritual condition of the saints in the congregation. Compare this to James 5, 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, among you, in your church, wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How many of us have a hopes of one day in glory having another Christian say, beneath the sovereign, sovereign working of God, that person, I can contribute the salvation of my soul because they came after me when they saw me drifting. This is how we ought to be in the church. Christian love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. Christian love pursues the good of its object. Each individual in a local body has a relationship to those in that body and that congregation as a whole that they do not share with other Christians in other churches or other churches as an ecclesiastical unit. There is, there is a special relationship here because we see each other so often that we are allowed to notice a slight drift. We can see it if we're paying attention, if we're alert and watchful with regard to other believers, watching for signs of wondering, noticing the relationship is drifting here. Something's not right. He or she is not like they used to be. Take note of things like absences, solitude, and exclusion. All of a sudden, they only show up late and they always leave early. They don't hang out like they used to. Noticing things and then saying things like this, and you can write this down, quote, is everything okay? 
end quote. It's very simple. It scares us to death. What if they say it's not? Then what? Then you have the opportunity to be a member of the body to a fellow member. What, what I've attempted to model in pastoral visits, it's just that. Y'all got the questions memorized by now. Just do that with one another so that our souls are the concern of one another. We're taking care of each other. Why? Because God says one sinner or one, one saint is worthy of going after. It's His love coming out in us. A third text, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Again, your brother, a fellow member in the congregation, sins against you. I do believe that that against you is at least a good translation in light of what we read in verse 21. Peter responds by saying, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? There, if your brother sins against you, what we're dealing with here is personal offenses between brothers in the, in the church. So what do we do? Somebody offends me in the congregation. Do I ignore it? Do I go tell other people? Do I get on Facebook? What, do you, what, what would you do if somebody did this in your church? No. Jesus says very clearly, go to him and tell him his fault. Explain the sin privately. Here's what you did. It, it was a sin against me. If you can't do that, if you can't say, here's where you sinned against me, here's the scripture that says that's a sin, then you probably should just get over it. It's probably not an actual offense. But if you can, your job is to go to them and explain the offense. Again, why? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love is not resentful. I don't want to store this up. I want to get rid of it. Love believes all things and hopes all things. I'm expecting, because you're a Christian, a fellow brother, I'm expecting when I bring this up, you're going to say, you're right. I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? Love endures courageously, expecting to see the victory. I believe the power of God can work in somebody else and bring them to a place of confession and repentance. And I believe that the scriptures that outline how to go about that are actually sufficient to explain the means that God has given to work these things out. If you don't believe the scriptures, then don't do this. If you believe the Bible, Christ says this is how you handle it. And notice the language. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Not you've won the argument. Not you've got a one-up on him. Not you've finally showed him that you're holy and he's not holy. Not, well, I've displayed my righteousness that I can go about this. He says you've gained. You've won. You got the prize. You retained a brother. Now, very often we don't think of brothers and sisters that way. That's the way Christ spoke of it. You've won. Christian love pursues personal reconciliation. Because it counts unity between brethren as a prize to be obtained. I want the prize. I want unity. A fourth text. In that same chapter, we have the parable of the unforgiving servant. I won't read the whole thing, but again, Peter asks, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And the Lord lays out, not just seven times, but 77 times or 7 times 7. The point is, don't stop. If it's a brother, you don't stop forgiving. 
Get all the way to verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. The point of the parable, it is your job to forgive your brother from the heart. That's what it looks like to love with a Christian love. Why? Because Christian love is not irritable. I'm not looking for ways to be pushed over the edge. Christian love is kind. Christian love is not resentful. Christian love is patient with others. And so what am I to do if I'm exercising patience? I want to be kind. I'm not storing anything up. I've got no reason to hold on to this. I'm not pushed over the edge. My only other option is forgive. Forgive one another. We have to be ready and willing to forgive one another from the heart. But Paul actually goes a step further in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 6 and 7, and this will be on the screen. He says, Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? They're taking one another to court in secular court trials, having unbelievers stand as judge over them. And Paul asks rhetorically, would it not be better to actually suffer and just take being defrauded than to subject yourself to that for the whole world to be able to see that the church is not getting along? What he's saying is, one, if we could turn it around, is in the church, for the sake of unity and for the sake of the reputation of the church as a united body, it would actually be better to be done wrong, to suffer at the hands of others, to be stolen from, than to take brothers and sisters to court and let the world see these people can't even get along. If we have to. It's better to accept wrong treatment in order to maintain the peace. Again, this is completely contrary to what our culture says. They say, you don't take that. You go tell her. You go tell him what you think. We don't, we don't believe that we ought to have to suffer under any circumstance. But love is patient. Love bears all things. We have to be ready, if necessary, to lay ourselves out on the butcher's block for the sake of our brethren. Now where in the world did I learn that? Because my king died for me. He laid himself out for me, for the sake of the church. That's where we get it. Lastly, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. We might look at this one some next week as well. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now notice what he says. Consider how. Stop and think. How can I stir up the brethren to love and good works? Think about it. The word for stir up there, it really means to irritate to unsettle. The picture that came to my mind was you've got a casserole that's hardened over the top. You know it's warm on the inside, but it's, it's cooled off on top. It's getting kind of crusty. And so you go up and you just break all that up and you stir it up in there where you can't see it anymore. There's, a, there's an irritation that's happening, but the outcome is good. That's what the picture is here. Stir them up. Break it up to love and good works. Break up the crust that has formed because there's been so much 
idleness, sitting and doing nothing. What can I do? I'm thinking and considering, how can I stir up these people to love and good works? Well, one way, he says, is not neglecting to meet together. Not, deban not abandoning, but continuing to meet together. You can't stir up the brethren to love and good works if you're not here. They can't stir you up to love and good works if you're not here. So consider, what effect will my absence have on the rest of the congregation? Encourage one another all the more by meeting together all the more. One way that you can encourage the brothers to love and good works is to show up. This might be the easiest one. Just show up. It's incredibly discouraging to the elders and probably to everybody else when people just don't show up for stated meetings unless providentially hindered. Now some people have never considered that because you've never thought that your actions actually affect other people. You never consider other people. When we come to these the, the descriptions of love that are, that are all negative, does not envy, is not resentful, well, you're not guilty of any of that stuff because you've literally never thought of another person in your whole life. You've gone so far to the, I'm not storing up wrongs, I'm not even storing up anything. I'm not thinking about anybody. Being a part of a local congregation and working toward unity means I stop thinking so much about myself and I begin to think about others and, and really to love others. Love is kind. Love does not seek its own things. Love rejoices with the truth. These are, this is just a few examples. The New Testament is littered with this. The fundamental grace necessary to cultivate corporate unity is love. It is a love that only God can give, rooted in a relationship only God can create. Its essential character is ultimately selfless pursuit of the good of others. And again, it's displayed supremely in Christ, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. I'll read it again. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. If you do not know Christ, everything that I have just described is a fairy tale to you. It's foreign. It goes against everything in you. And here's the scary thing. Unless you repent and turn to Christ, you will never know this, ever. You'll never experience it. Others of you are Christians. And so you've seen this love first and foremost in Christ. You saw it. And you have found it as precious. And you long to have that formed in you. And you recognize, I need some growth. There's some things I've never thought about. I'm doing some things I didn't realize I was doing. So you long for more. So what do we do? We pray. Ask for God's Spirit to help. Pray that there would be effectual application of these truths. Pray that the Spirit would help you make an honest evaluation. Where am I at? How do I act? What do I need to change? And then give you the strength to make an honest determination to walk in that, to put on Christ through the strength that He provides. So let's do that. Let's pray. And then we'll come back for the Lord's Supper. Christ does not envy or boast the one who has every right to boast. Never boasted. Christ is not arrogant. One who has every right to elevate himself 
humbled himself. Jesus Christ is not rude. He never acted, nor does he act with any unnecessary offensiveness. He did not insist on his own way. He was led like a sheep before its shearers, silent to the slaughter. Christ is not irritable or resentful. Jesus Christ has never gossiped about you. Christ does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoices with the truth. Even the little bit of truth that nobody else can see taking root in your heart, that nobody else notices, He rejoices with the truth. Christ bore all things, believed all things, hoped all things, endured all things for the sake of His church. And none of this is any more vivid or is in, more vivid anywhere than in his voluntary death on the cross. So as we consider the cross and we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that he is the, the manifestation, the incarnation of love in the flesh. We don't have to discuss love in the abstract. We can see it in the flesh of a man walking before our eyes. So let's give our attention to His voluntary death in love for His people, and then we'll come to His table together.